So in the church calendar, we're in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany means the unveiling, the shining forth. Um, and it's the response that we receive from having seen the light. So the Gospel of John starts off that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen it. In Matthew chapter 2, uh, Epiphany in the church year usually focuses in on two things. Uh, it will either focus on the visit of the Magi, the wise men, or it will focus on um, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, both an unveiling or a shining forth of the glory of God through his Son. This morning, we want to look at Matthew chapter 2. This is the visit of the Magi, the wise men. Uh, Epiphany is usually January the 6th, so that would be this coming Wednesday. And you all are familiar with the, um, the Christmas tune, uh, The Twelve Days of Christmas. That seems to go on forever. Well, the 12 days of Christmas is the 12 days from uh, Christmas Day, the birth of Christ, till Epiphany Sunday, um, January the 6th, um, commemorating the visit of the wise men. So as we said uh, last week, um, the wise men probably weren't at the nativity at the beginning there. They came a little later. Uh, the shepherds were there. The angels had been singing and gave their proclamation. But it was some time later, and we find that uh, from the beginning in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the, reign, the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So what we find is the fulfillment of many of the Old Testament prophets. Um, their prophecies, even going back to Isaiah, 750 years before Christ was born. These tremendous prophecies of God stepping into human history. Him coming personally. Uh, not being a God out there, but a God who is here with us. The name of Christ being called Emmanuel, God with us. Um, present in us, uh, with us, walking through this life, helping us to face whatever life brings towards us. And it was a time of darkness in which Christ was born. The Jews were a subject people. They were, um, had been for many, many years. And the Romans, who were in control at that time, could care less about a baby born in a manger, or born uh, in a stable. As a matter of fact, uh, most of the people didn't even know that that had occurred. Most people went on life as usual. Uh, nothing had changed as far as anybody was concerned, except in the spiritual realm, it was like an atomic bomb had been unleashed. And people just didn't realize it yet. But the outcome of that was there for all to see and experience and the repercussions of Christ's birth, the world has never got over. And we are still feeling the repercussions of that in the hearts and lives of transformed people to this very day. Some of us have been there. Um, we have experienced it. You have experienced it. Christ in your heart and in your life in a, uh, 
transforming, life-giving way on a daily basis. So in Herod's day, though, um, King Herod was a wicked, cruel man. In, the, in many, many years later, the last book of the New Testament to be written was the book of Revelation. It was written by the Apostle John. He was in a penal colony, um, imprisoned by the Roman government because of his faith. And in that place of exile, imprisonment, place of isolation, God spoke to John once again and gave him this tremendous revelation. What John understood when he was thinking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the effect that it would have on the world, we see very clearly in Revelation chapter 11. In that, it's, it's very um, symbolic in the language that he uses, but he's talking about um, Israel bringing forth a son. And the serpent, Satan, standing in front of her in order to devour and destroy that child as soon as he's born. And the result of that, of Christ coming in that area, was not peace on earth. As you read in Revelation chapter 12, right after the, the account of the birth comes this statement, there was war in heaven. And that war is exemplified in the events that took place in Matthew chapter 2. So Jesus is born. The king, just a few kilometers away, six kilometers away, doesn't even know it. And as far as he was concerned, he wouldn't care except that these Gentiles showed up. Now this is an answer to the prophecy of response. Um, from the book of Isaiah... Chapter 59. Sorry, that's 49. Verse 6. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, 750 years before the birth of Christ, speaking about the birth of the Christ. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. He says it again in chapter 52 and again in chapter 61. And so at least three times just this one prophet prophesies the coming of the Gentiles to be included in the grace of God poured out. Not an exclusive thing just for a few. And so... These wise men, Gentiles from the east. Remember, that's where Israel had been in bondage for 70 years in Babylon. 
And many of the Jews had risen to um, very high government positions in the various empires that had succeeded Babylon. They rose in the Babylonian Empire and in the Persian Empire as well to very, very high positions. These were men of standing. And when it came time to come back uh, from captivity, not all of them left. Many of them stayed there. And so somehow these Gentile kings, uh, these magi, these wise men, these priests, men of science and learning, understood by the stars and revelation that had been given them, that a, a special king was born. And they had traveled a long ways to find him. So here they come. They came to the capital city. And they came to the court of the king. And they said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now what's the response? Is there great joy? Is there uh, loud acclaim? Not in Herod's reign. Herod, at this time, Herod was drawing close to the end of his life and he is going insane. He was a very cruel, wicked man. He was paranoid. Um, he was afraid people were going to try to kill him. So he um, had killed his favorite wife. He killed at least three or four of his sons. Um, Caesar, in Rome, when he was told about the last one, he said... Um, it's, it's safer to be a dog in Herod's house than to be one of his sons. That's what uh, the emperor said. Uh, he killed his mother. Um, and he himself had contracted syphilis and, was, and had serious diseases and it had affected him mentally. So by this time, he was a very, very dangerous man and he was a very cruel, selfish, wicked man. So when he hears, he's an old man, he's dying, he knows he's dying, when he hears that a baby has been born that might be a threat to him and his dynasty, he just does what he normally does. He is the embodiment of the serpent that John portrayed in the book of Revelation, waiting to devour the Son of God. So they ask, where is the one who is born king? Notice what Herod says though, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed... Therefore, all Jerusalem with him. This is not good news. This is not peace on earth like the angels had sung a few weeks before. This was not goodwill toward men on whom God's favor rests. This was a man who was opposed to God and everything he stood for. And a man who was a very powerful and dangerous man. And he is disturbed. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, notice the question he asks. He's not asking about a king. He says, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Christ, that's a Greek word. It translates the Hebrew word, where's the Messiah? Where's the anointed one of God? That's who he's looking for. He understood in his warped mind the signs of the times. And he understood what was about to take place. So he's asking where the Messiah is going to be born. He doesn't know. So he calls in the chief priests, the religious leaders of the day, and find out where the Christ was to be born. And they're quoting from the book of Micah, another Old Testament prophet, contemporary of Isaiah. And he, they said, well, 
According to the prophets, and they quote from Micah chapter 5, but they didn't quote all of it. So this is the text from Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read the first five verses. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. What they quoted was, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are not the least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler who will be a shepherd of my people Israel. Shepherd means he's showing the kind of leadership he's going to give, not like Herod's. A shepherd who cares for the flock. He knows them each individually. He knows them by name. He cares for every need that they have. He provides for their protection. He leads them to places of security where they can have their needs met. And he watches over them. And they follow him and they won't follow anyone else. So that's the prophecy. So Herod, being the schemer that he always is, he calls these wise men secretly, verse 7, to find out the exact time the star had appeared originally. Because he's a calculating, scheming man. And he knows politics. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So here are these Gentiles. Gentiles, the excluded ones, the ones not chosen. And yet God has chosen to reveal to them the birth of his son. When many of those Israelites, most of them, didn't have a clue. These were the men of, and women of the book. These were the men and women who should have known, but did not. So now that they had gotten these good news that the Messiah is born, they all rushed out to see him and to meet him and to greet him. Not one. Not one. King didn't go. He's not going to go six kilometers to see a little baby that he's going to try to kill. So here are these chief priests and rulers of the people that he had called to say, these Gentiles are coming saying this prophecy is fulfilled. Where are the religious leaders? Where's the high priest? Where's the rabbi of the village? Not one. So it speaks a lot about the hearts of God's people, doesn't it? So it raises a question among us as Christian people. What about us? Is it just a story? Is it just a, a bit of history written in a book? Is it something that we remember and feel all warm and fuzzy? 
This is the one who was born king of the Jews. He will rule his people with a rod of iron. And he will bring their peace. But what happens, as we read Psalm 2, is that there's going to be a conspiracy against him from the very beginning. In Gospel of John chapter 1, he puts it this way. He came into his own, but his own didn't receive him. They rejected him. He was the light that came in, and the darkness didn't understand it, couldn't overcome it, didn't know what to do with it. Herod knew what to do with it. And so he sent these men to be his informants, these Gentiles, these innocent men, these Gentile kings who had traveled this long way in order to worship. Herod wants to know where Jesus is because he's not going to worship. He's going to obliterate him as a threat, this little baby, this six-week-old baby. So after they had heard the king, the wise men in verse 9, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Evidently, they had seen the star when they were in the east and they went to the place that that star indicated. After they got to Jerusalem, the star appears again. In verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him, fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah. And they presented, opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And I think the thing that was most valuable that they offered to the baby that day was their worship. That was greater than any treasure that they presented him that day. The Gentiles acknowledging the birth of the Son of God, understanding that somehow it's going to affect them. And it did. Any Gentiles here this morning? That's most, if not all of us. We're here today because of the coming of Christ. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. These were wise men. And they were open and sensitive to the leading and guidance of God. That's why they came at great cost and at great expense to themselves for the purpose of worshiping and presenting their gifts. They got nothing out of it except, like Simeon, they saw the salvation of God and were among the first to bow the knee before him. It's an incredible thing. The first ones... Some among the first to acknowledge Jesus as Lord were these Gentiles. And they were sensitive to God's leading and direction. Um, as men in the position that they were in, they were probably a good judge of character. And it didn't take long to be around Herod to know what kind of a man he was. And God spoke to them through this dream. They understood and they obeyed. They obeyed quickly. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord 
appeared to Joseph in a dream. So God is, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, these opening chapters, there's going to be about um, five or six dreams to various people, mostly to Joseph. But um, the Gentiles got, got one, and so there are several of them. But this is one of the dreams that Joseph has. An angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. Get up, take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, and he stayed there until the death of Herod. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. This one, it's Hosea, another one of the prophets. Out of Egypt I called my son. So God is working among his people. He's watching over these Gentiles. He's watching over um, his son. He's very well aware of what's going to take place. Joseph, an obedient man. And you see through these opening chapters of the book of Matthew, God chose his people well. Uh, Mary and Joseph. This was a man who knew God, a man who loved God and was open for God to lead him and direct him in, a, in really radical, radical ways. They were taking their stand against everything that their culture said was right. They were. Uh, people were not dumb in that day. They knew when the wedding took place and they knew when the pregnancy was. And that was going to come up in some of the jibes later on um, in John chapter 8. So um, they took a stand, a very courageous, difficult stand, and they followed God's leading and direction. God spoke to him during the night. He woke up. It was still dark. He did not wait. He got up during the night, packed what few things they had, and headed south towards Egypt, an unusual place to go. So Egypt becomes, um, at some times, it's a place of refuge, it's a place of security and hope. Other times it's a, it's a place of persecution and oppression. And both the refuge and the persecution are very, very strong and very prominent. And they are one or the other. And so at this point, Egypt becomes the place of refuge. That place of bondage had now become a safe haven for the Son of God. And he went there. Herod's no fool. When he realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So when you first come across this, that he calls them secretly to find out about the time, you think, well, you know, what's he wanting to know that for? This is why. This is why he wanted to know. He would know how many people he had to kill. How many homes he had to break. So he sent his soldiers and that's what they did. And so as Jesus comes into the world, he enters a world of hatred, a world of darkness, a world of death and destruction and he hasn't done anything yet. Just his presence. Just his presence. 
when you're in a dark, dark room with no outlet and it is pitch dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face, even a match hurts your eyes. It'll hurt your eyes. The light shined in the darkness. He came in weakness and frailty of this little baby and it burned the eyes of Herod. And he tried to put it out. He failed. But people suffered for that. And so as we think about Christmas, we can think about our own current events, about families that have been bereaved um, many places in the world today. And we think how awful that this took place during this season of the year. And actually, it's no different from what happened the very first Christmas, is it? with the suffering and the sorrow, the grief, the fear, the confusion. That's why Jesus has come. And he's come to be a light, as Simeon said, to the Gentiles and the hope and glory of the people of Israel. He is our peace. If we reject him, then we're left with Herod. And that's all we've got. And that's our choices today. Darkness or light, Jesus are the Herods of this world. And that's our choices. And we get to choose. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you haven't left us in the dark. We're so grateful, Lord, for your goodness and mercy. And so as we come before you this morning, we ask you, Christ, a light of the world, Meet us in our place of darkness. Journey with us and bring us to your new dawning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have communion every Sunday in our church. We do it because we need the reminder. And it's a reminder of the coming of Christ. And that the reason that he came was he came to die. But it had to be at God's way, at God's time. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a, a supper which God has invited us to come to. And it's a supper that's based on the life, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now the story that began in Matthew chapter 2 did not end there. That was just the beginning. And as we serve a holy God, made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, toward the end of Jesus' life in Matthew 26, there's going to be an unholy alliance raised up against him. It's Caiaphas, the high priest, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who had tried to kill Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, his son Herod is the one who executed John the Baptist. Uh, He's the one who is going to be involved in the death of Jesus Christ. And Pilate, the Roman governor. So you had the, the leader, the religious leader of the Jews, Caiaphas, in connection with Herod, who he did not like. Herod, who was an enemy of Pilate until the trial of Jesus. And through their mutual mockery of Jesus... Pilate and Herod became friends. And so you have this unholy alliance. The government, 
the church and the people. And they're all arrayed against Jesus in Matthew 26. And so Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus as a son, as a baby, his son is going to be involved in the death of Christ as a man years later. So this is part of Psalm 2. The rulers of the world take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. And Psalm 2 is a, a very powerful psalm. It's right at the beginning of the Psalter. It's there for a reason because it's God's plan and purpose. It's going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 4 after Pentecost when, the, when Herod continues to persecute the church along with the religious leaders of the day and they uh, are beating the apostles and challenging them not to preach anymore. They get together in Acts chapter 4 and they say, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And they're quoting from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. In between that fulfillment and the prophecy is the upper room. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body, it's broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. And after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, Each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. And it's shed for you and for many. It's for the forgiveness of of sins. It's for the healing of the nations. It's the only hope that we in this world have. And he invites us to come. So in our church, we believe in open communion. The invitation is from Christ. He is the one who died on the cross and rose again for our salvation and our redemption. And he is the one who makes the invitation. As a church, we give our invitation along with that. You are welcome at this table if you want to come. Again, we don't want anyone to feel pressured in any way. You don't have to come if you don't want to, but if you want to, you are more than welcome to come. There'll be someone over here. If, I'm, if you have anything you would like someone to pray with you about, there'll be someone over here uh, to pray. So I think there is an element of hope in that before Herod sent the soldiers and before the conspiracy, there were both Jews with the shepherds, Simeon, Anna, and Gentiles, these magi, who came and worship. The worship comes first, then the threat to try to destroy it, 
And then the power of God is unleashed through his son. And he invites us to enter into that today. And that power begins in the hearts of us as individuals with the forgiveness of sins, the transformation that takes place, the receiving of his forgiveness and his hope, his peace, and his future for us. So will those who are serving communion please come forward?